you probably know by now, uh, we are celebrating 20 years as a church, and uh, we are getting ready, kind of geared up for the end of August, August 29th, we're going to have a big 20-year anniversary celebration out of South Fork, and everybody's going to come together, we're just going to have a big blowout celebration, we're excited about that, but we've been in the mode of, of preparing and thinking and planning, and, and, and it just it brings back a lot of memories. You know, thinking back through 20 years of what we've seen God do. And our theme, by the way, is 20 years of changed lives. That's really what we want to celebrate is the fact that God changes hearts. God changes lives. And so we'll have testimonies leading up to that and as part of that event and all that. But I've just been thinking about a lot of that. But I've also been, been thinking about the fact that, uh, you know, throughout 20 years, we have some funny stories that have happened as well. And, and we're talking here in a new series. We're beginning a new series called We Don't Talk About That. There are certain things that sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable with in church or maybe, you know, we're worried about things being divisive and we don't want to go there. And, but, you know, one of the things that from the very beginning, for me at least, I wanted to make a point to try to tackle awkward head on as much as we can. And so rather than avoiding it, let's just jump into it and let's deal with it. And there have been some awkward moments in the history of our church. For example, when I was preaching through the Song of Solomon. If you are familiar with that book, it gets pretty detailed. And some of the things, we had a whole message about intimacy and what does that look like from Song of Solomon. And my mom was sitting on the front row right in front of me. Very awkward situation, I'm just telling you right now. Um, had another situation that, that because we say we don't talk about that and I was willing to, you know, answer any questions. I almost had the most awkward thing that could ever have happened in my entire life. It almost happened. Let me tell you what happened. We, we were having our Gateway to Gateway meetings, which if you've not, if you're new to Gateway, hadn't been a part of that, next Sunday actually is our next one. We do it third Sunday of the month. Now we do it during the 11 o'clock hour, and, and Stephen runs it. And at, back then there was no Stephen, at least for Gateway there wasn't. There was no church building to meet in. And so we would do it in our home. We'd do it on a Sunday evening, and Sean would cook dinner for everybody and put her amazing hospitality gifts to work, and she would host everybody, and we'd have fun, and we'd have a meal, and then we'd sit around, and we'd talk, and we'd do the, 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 the teaching portion of what we do here, and, and we'd get to the end of it. And I would always ask this question at the end of Gateway to Gateway, especially if time allowed, and I would ask the question, I said, is there anything that you want to ask? Nothing is off limits. This is the time to ask any question you want to ask. And one of the guys there, he was, he was, he was an older guy. You know, people kind of talk like this. He kind of mumbled a little. He's a little bit hard to understand. You know what I'm talking about? And he says, I have a question for you. I said, okay. And he said, uh, what's the church's position on masturbations? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, it's one of those things like where, you know, where everything goes into slow motion. And I'm just thinking... <laughs> I did say, no question is off limits. Now's your time to ask anything you want to know. And my dear sweet wife, who knows me so well, was in the kitchen, cleaning dishes in the kitchen, sees my face, reads me like a book, leans across the island and yells. He said, Master Masons, he wants to know the church's position on Master Masons, which is not the question that I thought he asked. I was about to answer the question I thought he asked. 
And I am so grateful to God that through the Holy Spirit, he intervened and gave my wife ears to hear that he was simply wanting to know. He was a master mason. And at that time, there was a lot of controversy about our masons. You know, to be a mason, can you still be? And, and so he wanted to know, as a master mason, would he be welcome to our church? And yes, we, we, that was a simple answer, much easier than the one that I thought I was going to answer. But... <laughs> We can't shy away. We need to be willing to address. Now, that's not the direction we're going. We are going in a direction that is a little awkward, but it's not nearly as awkward as that. So, you know, that's kind of like when you give somebody really, really, it could be this bad. It's only this bad. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to talk about tongues. Here's the question we're going to answer today is, what about tongues? Something we probably don't talk about a lot, at least in our church what do we understand about the gift of tongues and how that is exercised, could be, should be exercised? So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let's just jump in with the first five verses of this chapter. Fall the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. I'm going to stop there. We're going to read a lot of scripture today uh, together. I'm going to stop there for now. But let's begin with just answering this question. What does the Bible mean when it talks about speaking in tongues? Because that's the issue that he is addressing with the Corinthian church here. The first place in the New Testament that we have an example of speaking in tongues, of course, is Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came, Jesus told his disciples that they were to wait and and allow uh, the Holy Spirit to come. And so that's the first time that we see that. But there is some controversy about uh, when the Bible talks about speaking in tongues, what exactly does it mean? In this case, I think it's as clear as can be that he's talking about a miracle of the disciples speaking in a foreign language that they did not previously know how to speak. Let, let me just read it. Acts chapter 2. 1 through 6, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd gathered together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. So to me, that's, that's pretty clear. They hear their language being spoken by people who did not know their language, and so they conclude this must be of God. There's no other explanation. They listened to the message, and thousands of them came to faith that day. Now, there is some controversy about other places in the Bible what speaking in tongues means. And I find this very interesting, by the way, that we've, we've been talking for the last few weeks in chapter 12... We did a whole series talk about bodybuilding, building up the body of Christ. Chapter 12, it's, there's one body, many parts, but all the parts work together in the body to build up the body of Christ. That's the whole point. Chapter 13 is all about love. You know, the exercise of love is more important than the exercise of any spiritual gifts, and, and he makes that really clear in chapter 13. Now he goes into chapter 14, and it's interesting to me 
that the one issue that can be the most divisive in the church and can cause people to act in the most unloving manner toward one another is the one that he's about to address right after talking about being in one body and loving one another. And it's this issue of tongues and what does that mean to speak in tongues. So one thing that we know that it means, or that, that one of the examples in the book of Acts, is speaking in a foreign language and people understanding the message and responding to the gospel as a result. But there are two other instances in the book of Acts where people speak in tongues. And both of those are places where it is a confirmation that the people had received the Holy Spirit. The first one of those is in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, who was a Gentile, sent for Peter to come. And of course, the Jewish people at that time didn't have anything to do with Gentiles. They didn't think that God wanted to have anything to do with Gentiles. And so it was a radical idea to think that a Gentile could come to faith without becoming a Jew first. And so when they did, it says that they received the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in tongues. This was a way of God confirming to these Jews who didn't really believe that God would do that for Gentiles, that he had in fact done it. Same thing in chapter 19 in Ephesus. The people were prayed over and received the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. So two different times it is an, it is an example or a proof that the people were legitimate believers that they had really received the Holy Spirit. Now here's the question then. What did that look like when they spoke in tongues? Was that again speaking in a foreign language, which I think it very well could have been? Or... Was it some other type of language, a heavenly language, for example? We'll get to this in a minute where it talks about praying and praying in a, a tongue. And, and, and is that maybe some unique type of a private language that only God understands and only God knows? There is some gray area there. And I think we have to live in that gray area. I don't think this is one that we can be just completely dogmatic and say this is how it is. Now, what I would say is very important is this is a non-essential issue when it comes to our salvation. We can have fellowship with one another even if we disagree about the exercise of tongues. Just like a few weeks ago when we looked at the role of women in the church. There are people that can come to a different conclusion than the one that I came to based on their understanding of scripture and we still can love each other and fellowship together and work together. We're on the same team. That is not an essential doctrine. Essential doctrines would be things like the nature of Jesus, that he is God, always has been God. Uh, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead. You know, those are core, essential elements to our faith. But there are some elements to our faith where we can have disagreement, and, and that's okay, and still love one another. This is one of them, our understanding of tongues. However, in my opinion, what is absolutely essential is that we understand what tongues are not. And tongues are not evidence that you are a real Christian or that you have received the Holy Spirit, or that you are really saved, or certain level of maturity. Uh, that we know for sure, because Romans 8, verse 9, talks about how if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, then he doesn't belong to Christ. So everyone who is a believer has the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says the Holy Spirit is the seal with which we are marked for the day of redemption. So as a believer, every believer has the Holy Spirit in them, but not every believer speaks in tongues as a way of demonstrating that they really have been born again. And there are some churches that teach that. I would refer back to, if we want to say that tongues are still a gift that is, that is being uh, utilized and exercised today, let's go back and remember, it is a gift. It is listed as a spiritual gift, meaning that not everybody has it. So what we can say emphatically 
is that it is dangerous and anti-biblical to teach that if you don't speak in tongues, you really aren't saved or you really don't have the Holy Spirit. What is a little bit more of a gray area is, okay, what does that look like when we talk about somebody speaking in tongues? Are we talking about just a foreign language? Are we talking about a heavenly language of some sort? I would refer back to verse 2. Verse 2 says, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. And then if we skip ahead, which we had not gotten there yet, but if we skip ahead to verse 14, he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So I think you can legitimately make a, a pretty strong case that there is a, a, a gift that some have to be able to pray in a tongue, which would be different from the normal language they have. Now again, is that a foreign language? Is that a kind of a heavenly language that, that nobody understands but God himself? A um, little bit of a gray area there. Uh, Want to know my position on this? I'm going to share that with you. But first, let me, let me share this. Um, it's really important when coming to a position, first of all, to remember unity in the body is first and foremost. That's important. So this is not something to say, you're over there, we're over here, and if you don't agree, we can't have fellowship with one another. But here's the other thing. We must allow Scripture to interpret our experience, not the other way around. This is really important. We don't believe something because we have or have not experienced it ourselves. Okay? We let Scripture speak, and then we interpret our experience in light of, okay, this is what I saw, this is what I experienced, but what does the Bible say about how I should understand that? We flip it around. On both sides, by the way, there are some that are absolutely dogmatic that, that speaking in tongues is an active gift and something that everybody should pursue, and their, their rationale for that is because I've experienced it. I've spoken in tongues. I've prayed in tongues. I've been in gatherings where I've seen it done. I know that it's real. There are very godly people that I look up to that speak in tongues. Therefore, based on my experience, I believe that it must be real. And then there are some that have the opposite view and say, I've never experienced that myself. I've never seen it done in a way that I would consider to be a legitimate or biblical manner. Therefore, it must not be real because I've never seen it or experienced it. And neither one of those is correct. We, we don't interpret the Bible in light of what we have or have not experienced. And so the answer to this question of, you know, where do I land on this is, if I'm doing my job, and that is trying to allow the Scripture to speak for itself, then I don't see any way I can rule this out and say that a person speaking in tongues is, is not legitimate or not of God. I'm going to be just straightforward and tell you, I've never experienced that myself. I've never spoken in a tongue. I've never prayed in a tongue. I, I don't, very rarely, I've, maybe more so on the prayer, prayer front where I feel like I've been part of groups where that's been exercised, but not around it just a whole lot. But that's not the issue. The issue isn't my experience. The issue is, what do I understand Scripture to say? And there are some that would make the case that, well, certain gifts, the more uh, uh, signs gifts are often referred to, things like speaking in tongues and performing of miracles and things like that. There are some that are what we would call cessationists. They believe that those stopped with the early church and they no longer are in existence. They're no longer valid. In my opinion... You have to do a lot more theological gymnastics and wiggling around to make a case for that than you do to say, well, it's in the Scripture and God speaks of it, therefore it must be legitimate, even if I don't experience it myself. That's where I land. That's bottom line for me. 
I, I think it, it could be, again, it's a great area, could be a gift that somebody would still be given or exercised today. Uh, the fact that I've not experienced that doesn't mean that it's not possible and that God can't do that. But if he does, here's some things that we do know, and this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on. Let's talk about if this gift is one that is to be used today, what can we learn from this chapter about how it should happen? Here's the, the first thing is the, the end of verse the, the end of verse five that we just read a moment ago, it says the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. First thing is this, that speaking in tongues doesn't edify the church as much as other gifts. Speaking in tongues doesn't edify the whole church as much as other gifts. Now, let me continue on. We'll read some more about that. Verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit. Try to excel in those that build up the church. Pretty clear what he's saying here, right? That the most important thing is to build up the church. And he's basically saying that if a person speaks in tongues, but it's, it's, it's not understandable, then that really doesn't do anything to build up the body. I guess the, the point that he's making is some, the same point that we've made many times before, chapter 12, early. Exercising our gifts is always about building up and edifying the body, not about the individual. Anytime we make any gift, whether it be speaking in tongues or any other gift, about the individual, that's a problem. It's about how do we build up the body of Christ. And he says what builds up the body is being able to communicate a message clearly. Prophesying, for example, which could be somebody being given a, a unique message from God, or it could just be taking the Word of God, in our context, taking the Word of God and just clearly laying it out so it's very clear uh, what we're talking about. Which, by the way, a little bit, maybe just slightly off topic, but really, not really. Even in the church today, it is so important for us to communicate the message in a way people can understand. It may not be speaking in a foreign language, but I'm convinced that in, in, in some cases... The message is communicated in a way that people are like, I don't really know what they're talking about. Maybe it's over my head, or they're using language I don't understand, or they're you know, so outdated in the methods of communication or whatever that it just doesn't connect. So we ought, to, we ought to communicate in a way that people can understand. So in this case, it's prophesied. Speak the word clearly so people can understand and know what God is saying. I had a great illustration of this that Friday morning I, I went for a little walk through my neighborhood I'm just having some prayer time and then I'm listening to some worship music and uh, this is kind of a neat time to commune with God and and this song came out. I'm listening to worship song and this beautiful song came out I didn't recognize and they began to sing and I realized through the whole song the entire song was in Spanish and it was just this beautiful worship song in Spanish and and I'm enjoying the the music of it and the people you know have nice voices and all that but my, my Spanish is very limited. I mean, I picked up a few words, you know, here and there. And I was picking up talking about faith and the heart. And, you know, a few of these things. I'm like, I'm getting a little bit of what they're saying. 
But I have to tell you, I wasn't completely edified by that song because I didn't understand it. Right? Somebody who speaks Spanish could listen to that song and be like, this is wonderful. They would get more out of, they would be edified more because they understand what's being said. Another way of looking at that, if, let's say there's somebody who speaks only Mandarin Chinese. That's all they can understand. And they were to come to a worship service here. Now, they could probably see smiling faces or you know, tell that people love them and sense the, the Holy Spirit in that way. That would be good. Uh, maybe enjoy you know, some, some, but it wouldn't be as meaningful to them as if they went to a service that, where they spoke Mandarin so they can understand. Same thing as what's, what he's saying here. Why speak in this tongue or this language that, that people don't understand? Now, let's continue on with that idea. Verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you're saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Here's the, the second thing today I want us to see is that speaking in tongues should never be done unless it is interpreted. Publicly, that is. We're talking about in a public corporate setting. Shouldn't be done unless it is interpreted. And he just makes that really clear here. Now, don't read this as Paul is being critical of those who speak in tongues. Because in verse 18, isn't verse 18 interesting? He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. So this is something that he practiced. I suspect going back to verse 14, when he says, if I pray in a tongue, I suspect that that's what he's getting at. So it's not that he's being critical about tongues. It's, it's the way it was being done. It was the way that it was being, uh, the way it was happening in the corporate setting as the church was coming together. And the reason this is such a big deal from verse 17 is because it says, you are giving thanks to one love, but no one else is edified. You just see this theme coming up over and over again. It's so important for the rest of the body to be edified. It's not about the individual. If you want to edify yourself, fine, stay home and, and not stay home from church, but when you have your private times with, with just you and God and, and you want to communicate together. That's what we see here. Let's skip ahead to verse 26. We're going to come back to the part that I skipped, but verse 26 says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. We see that theme again. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. That's pretty straightforward. If there's no one to interpret so that the rest of the church can be built up, just keep your mouth shut. Do it at home. And that runs contrary to this idea, this image that we have of somebody speaking in tongues, and it's almost like they become possessed, you know, and it's like this, oh, it just comes out, and there's no control over it whatsoever. That's not what we see here. What we see is him saying, look, if there's not someone to interpret, then just stay quiet and speak at home to yourself and God, and you may be edified from that, and that's wonderful. 
Now, let's go back to verse 20, the part that we skipped. Verse 20 says, Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone is speaking in tongues... And inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now this passage, if you read this carefully, you might scratch your head a little bit because it starts by saying. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And then it goes on and says, but if an unbeliever comes in while you're speaking in tongues, won't they think you're crazy? So it's like, okay, what is happening here? What is he getting at? And again, I think we have to acknowledge this is a bit of a difficult passage, maybe some gray area on this particular one. But here's what what I think he's saying. And this is the third main idea, that tongues can, can be... A sign for unbelievers, but they also can be a stumbling block for them. Acts chapter 2, great example of tongues being a sign for unbelievers. The verse that he quotes, verse 21, is from Isaiah 28. This is really interesting because he's talking about with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. What God is saying here is, you're going to come under my judgment so that foreign nations are going to come in and take over and you're going to experience Uh, the oppression of foreign people. So through a foreign tongue, I'm going to speak to you. It's, It's really God saying, this is a sign for you in a negative manner. Like you don't believe me, you don't want to follow me, I'm going to send you somebody foreign from a foreign nation that doesn't believe in me, and then you're going to realize how much you've disobeyed me. So it can be a sign to unbelieving Jews in a negative manner. Or, as in Acts chapter 2, it is a sign in a positive manner. But in Acts chapter 2, this is um, the, the disciples of God in a public place preaching the message of God exclusively to those who do not yet know Christ. They're Jewish people, but they're unbelievers in the sense of not being believers in Jesus. That's the setting. That is a totally different setting from a worship service where the people of God are gathered together to worship and it's geared more around believers, not as much around unbelievers, and all the believers are speaking in tongues to one another. See, that's a totally different dynamic. And the point that he's making is, yes, speaking in tongues can can be assigned to unbelievers, but what happens if an unbeliever walks into a church and all the people are speaking in some language that doesn't make sense to them They're going to think, these people are nuts. They've lost their minds. Acts chapter 2, they kind of thought the same thing. Are they drunk? They're like, it's only 9 in the morning. We're not drunk. But that was their first thought. But, But it wouldn't make sense to walk into a gathering of God's people, and the people of God are speaking to each other in tongues. What's the point of that? There's not really any purpose in it, and it would actually do more harm to the message of the gospel than it would good. So... Yes, it could be a sign, but it also could be a stumbling block if it's not done the right way. So, let's 
Let's wrap it up. Let's try to come to a conclusion here. What, what, what about tongues? Personally, I don't see how we can, from Scripture alone, rule this out and say this cannot be of God. That God cannot work in that way. I just can't, I just can't get there based on what I see in Scripture. However, the other side to that is a lot of maybe even what we see exercised today also doesn't line up with Scripture. Bottom line of what I take from this is that Paul's heart for the church is that they would be edified and that communicating a message clearly so that people can understand is more important. And he says even for unbelievers, even though tongues can be a sign for unbelievers, prophecy can also be for unbelievers because it says in verse 24, if an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted by their sin, brought under judgment by all, and the secrets of their heart are laid bare. They will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. The message needs to be clear. In the community of God, when the people of God come together to worship, when we come together to encourage and edify one another, the message needs to be clear. If you want to say to me, I believe that God has given me a gift of tongues, and, and I, I, in my own prayer closet, and I pray, and there's a heavenly language that I pray in, and it, I just feel edified in doing that, God bless you. I think that's wonderful. That's not a gift that, that everybody has. Don't try to force that on somebody else. Certainly don't use that as an indication of whether a person is really saved or even mature in their faith. But if that's your thing, that, that you feel like God has given you that gift, then, then fine. Uh, but corporately, together as the body of Christ, let's focus on what builds up that body. Back to 1 Corinthians 13, the very first verse. says, if I speak in the tongues of men... And of angels, let's say maybe he is speaking of a heavenly language there. But do not have love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. See, let's not let this issue of tongues divide us. Let's make edifying the church, let's make loving one another the top priority because that is really what matters most. Let's pray. Lord, give us wisdom, we pray, to understand things that are sometimes difficult for us to understand. I pray the same for myself. Uh, as, as Lord, I wrestle through this passage and what it means and how to communicate it. And just, Lord, you give us wisdom. If there are things that I've said that are not right, I pray that you would correct that in the hearts of, of those that are listening. Uh, Lord, that you would communicate to us your truth, but more than anything, you would help us as your people to edify one another, to communicate the message clearly and to be instruments that you would work through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.